I love the Smiths. Sorry? I said I love the Smiths. You've, you've good taste in music. You like the Smiths? Yeah. To die by your side is such a heavenly way to die. I love them. This is Snails and Oysters. Welcome to Snails and Oysters, the bi-weekly, bi-coastal, bi-sexual movie podcast. I'm Nat Roberts. And I'm Allison Rogers. Oh, oh my. Let me take that back. I'm Nathaniel (laughs) Grant Roberts. (laughs) Sorry, I've been watching a lot of Bridgerton. (laughs) Yes, of the Dayton Roberts. (laughs) Uh, I I, I still haven't dipped into Bridgerton, which feels unusual for me because I am a simp for Jane Austen era. Yeah, well, I have, as I told you on the call, had a really weird week at work. And um, so uh, Bridgerton has been my comfort viewing. I can totally see that. It does seem yeah. like a great comfort show. Yeah. that's the thing. It's funny you mentioned your week at work because we, we're recording this banter actually far in advance because when this episode comes out, I'm going to be in New York away from my hard drives. And so this is being recorded like a month in advance. So anything we say is going to be so untopical that uh, I don't think we should even try. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, and it's funny because I don't know who Allie and June will be. Will yep. she have a job? Will she be on unemployment? <laughs> We're not sure. Allie, what's it like? Yeah, yeah that's a, it, it's it's truly this is a message in a bottle for our future selves. But yeah. s- since we need to do something evergreen, I thought we could do sort of some housekeeping for the show. Cool. I noticed something recently that I, I think uh, – you know, a way that we could really step up the program, really kick it into high gear, and that is, uh, we need more catchphrases, Allie. Oh, okay. You want to be on the catchphrase train? Oh yeah, we we need uh, something we can put on T-shirts. So far, oh. we have a humiliating lack of running bets. Um, you know, we have Mary Fuck Kill, we have By Ally, uh, we have you always saying a hundred percent. <laughs> but oh my we, we, God, need, yeah. we need some like really SEO friendly catchphrases. SEO friendly. <laughs> so I, I've prepared a few. Let me just hit the hit you with them and get your gut reaction. Remember, it's brainstorming. There's no wrong answers. So let's see. Uh, first one is uh, very simple. Let's escar go. So we can start saying that maybe like before we start our discussions, just like finish the plot synopsis. Let's escar go. Absolutely not. That's a big no boo. Put in a sound effect of people going boo. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. You know, let's try another one. Uh, Oyster. I hardly know her. Oof. So this one I'm picturing we could maybe uh, maybe use it when we, we have a, a guest on the show. Like we introduce them. If they're a femme person or use she, her pronouns, we can be like, you know, Olga Lexel, Oyster, I hardly know her. Uh-uh, no. Wow. Wow, they're getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> Would it be better if I added, like, a Fozzie Bear Waka Waka afterwards? No. Okay, no. okay. I hear what you're saying. Uh, I'll send that back to the marketing department. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, I'm worried the marketing department is just you at 11 o'clock at night. Wearing a wig, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, next one. Now, this one, actually, I, I, I think could be a really good segment, uh, which is... Uh, Getting snailed. 
which is that if, oh, God. if one of us like has a great Friday night, we come in the next day to record and we say, last night I got snailed. No, because it sounds both incredibly graphic. Like it sounds so graphic. And I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, all right. Here's here's one. Uh, here's one I think you're really going to dig. This is for when we we really love a movie. We say that we tell our audience that this movie is going to oysters rock this feller. It's like really going to oh, rock your world. That's you know. kind of funny. That did kind of make me laugh. It rocked this feller. Oh, no, no, no. Um, that one might be my favorite one. But I think that like snails and oysters, it's not like particularly pun friendly. And that's your fault. And that's on you. <laughs> that is true. I did pick the name. <laughs> I You inherited this name. I was very insistent on it. You were very insistent. I remember I was like, what about that name? And you were like, this is the name. This and is I was Ali. Like, I'm more attached to this it, name God. than our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So I, I, I have one, one last one, which is uh, I think we could start referring to ourselves as sort of like, you know how Batman and Robin are the dynamic duo? I think we could say that we're heroes in the half shell. I actually do kind of like that. I stole it from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, <laughs> I of known course, that. that's the only one you like. <laughs> I should have known that. Maybe I think subconsciously it, it, it awoke my uh, Saturday d- cartoon alley. <laughs> Too bad. Too bad that's I, taken. That's so funny that you actually <laughs> like that I really one. liked that. I really liked that. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe maybe we can like play off it and say we're the podcast in a half shell. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking speaking of not really liking things, uh, let's get into this week's movie. Hell yeah! This week we are talking about uh, the the 2000s rom com hipster juggernaut that is. 500 Days of Summer. Mm-hmm. So appropriate that we're releasing this episode in June. I know. I thought that was very, very clever of us. I honestly didn't notice it until right now. This is genuine surprise. <laughs> oh, not I me thought doing that a was your marketing brain at work. Nope. <laughs> My marketing brain like Focus died after Oysters Rockefeller. <laughs> probably for the best. R.I.P. Um, yeah. So you are not a fan of this movie. I'm so not a fan of this. Like, I enjoyed it the first time I saw it, rewatching it, but then, like, thought about it and decided I didn't like it. Rewatching it this time, I got, like, vocally angry. I was, I never yell at the TV. I was yelling at the TV. <laughs> That's really funny because, I'm going to be honest, I dreaded rewatching this movie. Mm-hmm. There were moments that definitely needled me and irked me, especially, like, there were a lot of just, like, casual jokes about, like, lesbians and gay people yep, that yep, felt yep. like, wow, we really, like, have had a low bar for, you know, homophobia in 2009. Yeah. But yeah, I I have to be honest, rewatching this movie, I was dreading it. I put it off like all day. I literally was late to our recording because I was finishing the movie. But that's just par for the course. A little. It's a, <laughs> only what I'm dreading. But um, <laughs> I, I have to be honest, I really liked rewatching it. And I really was, I don't know, I was, I was rewatching it more as like, a cultural artifact about that time. And I don't think you know this. I don't think you're online enough, so no offense. But twee as a style, as a lot of people are claiming that it's like com- making a comeback because Gen uh. Gen Z is like discovering it and, and like making a lot of TikToks about it. I don't know, Vogue had this big article that's like twee is back. And I don't know, it's just kind of interesting seeing this movie that really epitomizes twee. Yeah. And also that came out like... It just like felt like a what's it called a time 
box, a time machine. No, a <laughs> a time capsule, a time capsule, time box, time capsule. It felt like a time yeah. capsule. And I think I tried to see it through the lens that the director and Joseph Gordon-Levitt wanted it to be seen as as an anti-romance. And I got warm fuzzies. I'm going to be honest. I, I It sounds like we have a really rich disagreement on this one. And those are always my favorite episodes. Same. I'm gearing up for a fight. Yeah, let's get into it. 500 Days of Summer. Five Hundred Days of Summer is a 2009. Well, the genre is up for debate. I will still call it a romantic comedy. Directed by Mark Webb, based on a screenplay by Scott Neustadter and Michael H. Weber. It stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a fucking serial killer. Uh, sorry, excuse me. Greeting card writer named Tom Hansen, who develops a strong crush on. Uh, his boss's new assistant, Summer Finn, played by Zooey Deschanel at the height of her powers. <laughs> at the height of her powers. So it's a non-linear film, which is a fancy so way. Original. Yeah, it's a it's a fancy way of saying that it's told through a mix of moments in the film's present and also flashbacks. Mm-hmm. So that over the course of the film, you know that uh, Summer and Tom have broken up, but you're watching their relationship unfold from the beginning of when she starts working at his greeting card company and he develops this really undeserved idea that she is yeah. the quote-unquote one. Uh, from there, the, the, the trajectory of Tom and Summer's relationship is actually quite simple. Mm-hmm. They get together. She doesn't want something serious. He does. He sort of forces the issue. They end up breaking up, and he obsesses over her for what seems like the next year or so. Yeah. Uh, until he finally reaches, let's call it a, a place of resolution. Yeah. <laughs> 500 days after they met. On release, 500 Days of Summer received inexplicable critical acclaim, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, like, there's, we'll get into it. There's plenty to like about this movie. But the fact that nobody seemed to ha- anyway, um, and was a uh, was very successful at the box office. In the intervening decade and a half, it's sort of become an icon of like this two thousands twee hipster uh, Smiths loving indie yeah. uh, rom com period. Put it in file it in the same genre as like Garden State or. Um, Elizabeth Town, Juno, these sort of hipster rom-coms that are trying not to be rom-coms. A rom-com for the modern woman. <laughs> right, yes, with our, our skinny jeans and our ironic record collection. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Killing the golf industry. Millennials! <laughs> Let's get into it. So I, <laughs> yeah, I think you have to outline your issue with the movie because yes. I'm the I'm an apologist here. Yes. So so I yes <laughs> permission so, to approach the bench. I think I can really clearly what I state what I think. Yes. The issue with the film is, but I think you should go first. Okay. Well, I will say that the issue with the film is that it's an atrocity. <laughs> um, no, I. Here's the, here's my take. This is a really well-made movie that promotes a lot of ideas that are antithetical to my beliefs, both about good storytelling, 
about good character development, but also about real relationships, living in the real world. I think that because it's good, I like it less because it is more effective at promoting those ideas and making them seem normal. So part of the reason that I get so like worked up about disliking this movie is that I think it's easy. It's a very insidious movie in my opinion. And, and I think it all comes back to the writing. Like I think the direction is fine. The acting is fine, but the story being told is what I have a problem with. Counterpoint. No, um, (laughs) I think, I think the mission of this film was really bold because I think it set out to basically say, all of these rom-coms that told you that there is a quote-unquote one out there have actually put an idea in your head of a story that you should follow to find happiness when that is like a really toxic way to pursue a relationship and also a really good way to like avoid doing the things that might make you truly happy. But I think that ultimately they tried to do this in the movie, but towards the end, they send a lot of mixed messages about the ultimate like meaning of the film, which I think allowed people to walk away feeling like ultimately feeling ultimately reinforced. Yes. I think what I'm trying to say is it's very easy to walk away from the movie having all the toxic shit it tries to debunk being very reinforced. And I think that's a failure of the film and one that actually in the intervening, what, 11, 12 years? What's 13? 13, fuck. 13 <laughs> We're years. We're old, Allie. Yeah, I know. It's, it's come up actually a few times in the intervening 13 years that like this film was widely misinterpreted, even though they were very direct about wanting it to be about how toxic the true love soulmate kind of story is. So I'm going to say one last thing because I can tell you want to talk, but like I'm I'm real. Yeah, I want to make this comparison that I understand is insane, but I am going to make it. And then you can choose whether or not to cut it out. But in her really good podcast about the book Lolita, Jamie Loftus talks about how Nabokov really, really hated pedophilia and the predatory way that older men could Mm -hmm. get away with like pursuing girls and that he was trying to write a book that exposed this issue, but that clearly his book failed because in American culture, people have come away believing that it is the quote unquote greatest love story of all time. And so I think this is a really interesting example in a similar way to Lolita of how difficult it can be to make art about something that you're trying to say, hey, this is bad. But when you don't really, really hone in the point of view, then like it gets really messy and a culture is going to fuck up receiving it. Yeah. There you go. Let's fight. Counterpoint. Jane, you ignorant slut. Uh, No, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) The point counterpoint format got to me. I think that that's a smart comparison to a point. We're about to fight about Lolita. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I haven't read Lolita, so I am not an expert. Um, but what you're describing is, is I've, I've heard it called the satire paradox, where it's when you are pointing out the issues with something, people misinterpret it as a celebration or the people that you are satirizing really enjoy it. I don't think that 500 Days of Summer is an example of that. I, I think that the mixed messaging that it sends at the end 
completely robs it of any claims that it is satirizing the rom-com at all. I think it wants to have its cake and eat it too. Uh, And it ends up completely defanging, declawing the movie because the main character doesn't change at all. He starts the movie with these toxic assumptions about romance. And yes, they don't work out in this relationship, but Summer herself literally says to him at the end, you were right, just not about me. That's the thing that really gets me. The fact that Summer gets married at the end and tells Tom that love is real and he just needs to find his person makes it a movie about getting over a breakup rather than learning from a breakup. I actually have to disagree that he doesn't change. I don't know how you can disagree with that. He starts the movie as a toxic prick. He ends the movie on his way to traumatize another woman. I actually don't think he does. I I realize it's a really small moment, so I understand people might disagree with it. But um, a signature feature of his relationship with Summer is that he decides she is the one and obsesses over her for weeks before ever asking her out. And that, in fact, it is his friend who pushes the issue and she is the one ultimately who initiates it in his brief moment with Autumn. So it's difficult to, like, really have a strong argument. He decides to just ask her out. He has a moment of interest and immediately asks her out. And then she says she can't and he walks away. And I know that's like a really, really small point. But actually, to me, that is a moment of growth, because instead of like him instantly deciding that she is the one, it's like, yeah, actually, the mature thing to do if you're interested is just to ask. Is to just yeah. ask. So I guess to me. I understand the needle that they were trying to thread, but I still think it's messy. The end is messy. I I, I see what you're saying. I, I That is a more valid argument than I gave you credit for initially. I don't think that that's his major flaw, though. Mm. Like, I, I think his major flaw is that he doesn't respect boundaries and he doesn't listen when people talk. He's a complete narcissist. Yeah. And so, like, the fact that he's willing to initiate a relationship is change, but it's not big. Like, I think the the irony of that final narration where he's like, he had learned that love wasn't real. He had learned it wasn't real. But then he goes back to talk to her. Like, he, he, he like, still takes a chance on love. It's still showing that he hasn't changed, that he hasn't actually learned anything. Like, the lessons he thought he learned, he hadn't. And the lessons he learned were wrong. You know, he he's still thinking in this completely monogamous, traditionalist, possessive paradigm of romance. And the movie still supports him. You know, it still supports the idea that there is love out there, that he just needs to find it. Uh, you know, like, I, I, I really think that his final scene with Summer and that resolution of Summer's story completely undercuts it. the entire the entire point of the movie. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I think... I don't think that the entire point of the movie was necessarily that like love doesn't exist. Right. Because that's like the that's kind of like Summer's position in the beginning. Literally. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. That any like self-awareness the movie had about the romantic comedy genre is undercut by the fact that it ends with one of them getting married and the other off to date again without really having changed. Like, if anything, Summer changes more because she comes around to Tom's position that love and marriage are great things that everybody should want. I guess I understand your argument that that's ultimately, like, a conservative message. But I still think the message of the film, it's more nuanced than simply, like, I guess, like, ultimately the message of the film is just that true love won't save you. 
I can see that. And I actually think a big part of my like rewatching this film, I was thinking a lot about the fact that this film came out in 2009. Mm-hmm. And I am going to say it. 2008, we had the, the big old recession, the big market crash. Yeah. I think that this was a time, like I remember at the time I had a step family. I no longer do because my mom and stepdad got divorced. But at the mm-hmm. time I had siblings who were just going into college. And like, I remember the mood in the household was really grim. Like, because every day, like every day there were articles about how like, this was gonna be the worst time to go to college. And that people matriculating into school needed to like do something where you could really find a job. And if you were graduating, this is the worst time to graduate. Like it was basically a time where like, if you were a young person without means, all these things you were told about what your life might be like were, really taken away from you. Absolutely. And so like, I think that what happens a little bit in an environment like that is you're like, well, how else, how else can I be happy? You know, maybe it can be through true love, you know, like that's how I'm going to find happiness. That's what all these stories and songs told me. And like a big, big feature of his relationship with Summer is that like, he wants to be an architect and he's always doing his dumb little doodles, which I think is a hilarious way to pursue architecture is to be like, I'm doodling. I mean, yeah, we can get into that, but I mean, I it's, mean, it's goofy. It's goofy. It's like, very the, 2000s, like romantic comedy architect, how I met your mother architects, love actually architects. Yeah. Uh, and that what's always hilarious to me is that if you talk to actually architects, it's a miserable career. Like, And you need a master's degree. Like, Oh yeah. Like, there are so many qualifications yeah. you need to do it because you're building fucking skyscrapers. <laughs> yeah. But Weird Al Yankovic actually was talking in an interview. He was an architecture major in undergrad and he said like people call it architorture. Architorture. That's so funny. But anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. What what I will say though, I, I think that in periods that you're describing like these really confused eras, that's where you do see a certain conservatism in art where it's like, you know, I've, I've heard it described before that periods of great social change are when we often uh, see an uptick in like period pieces. So like Arthurian legends became very popular during the Industrial Revolution because nobody really knew what was going on, so they appealed to an Arcadian past. I would say that 500 Days of Summer appeals to a very traditionalist view of love and romance. Even if the main relationship doesn't end happily, it's still saying that there is a one. That's true, but I think that like what I'm trying to say with the whole job thing is I imagine what it would be like to be around that age in 2009. Sure. You know, where I was like, however old I was, but I was in school and I was like, I'm busy thinking about like my English exam or whatever, you know? Yeah. But I imagine what it would be like to be graduating in 2009 or to be like in your mid twenties in 2009 and to be like looking at this really bleak future, feeling really bad. And then like seeing a movie that's kind of like, you're seeing a movie where someone is really unhappy in their job. And then like at the end of the movie, he does pursue the actual thing he wanted to do. So I don't think it's true that he doesn't change throughout the movie. I actually think he actually does the thing that he says he wants to do. And like that matters. And I think that that's part of the message of the film is like, you can't be miserable like in your life and expect, yeah, I expect and a then expect a relationship to come in and fill your life with sunshine. Cause even early on in the film, he says like, she makes life seem worth living. Like that's fucking dark, dude. Yeah. You know, like that's dark. I, I, I see what you mean. And I do think that's present, but I, I just, I, I can't get past 
I don't know. I, I just think that the movie is constantly undercutting itself. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think it starts with the first frame where it opens with this author's note saying that everything's based on, you know, blah, blah, blah. Everything's fictional. Definitely not based on you, Jenny, whatever your name is. Bitch. Yeah. Like it opens with that. Yeah. It establishes itself as a deeply misogynistic movie from the start. I'm not going to pat around it. This movie doesn't like women. I think, you know, I I think that it it tries to have these moments like when Tom's on a blind date and his date says like, hey, she never lied to you. She never took advantage of you. What's your problem? But again, it keeps undercutting itself. It keeps undercutting itself because Tom never says, I was wrong to treat you that way or I didn't think of your feelings. She apologizes to him more than he ever apologizes to her. Summer apologizes to Tom twice. Tom never apologizes to her. He never admits wrongdoing. Even other characters don't ask him to. His sister doesn't say, hey, maybe think about the ways you treated her wrong. She says, hey, maybe think about the times she treated you wrong. Mm. And I know people say, like, it's 100% from Tom's perspective. That's part of the point of the movie. But his perspective is that of a infantile, self-obsessed moody teenager. Well, yeah, but I think that the film is mocking that, isn't it? I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think the authors want to wink at the audience and say, we know, we're being overdramatic. But, like, we're right, you know? Like, it keeps reinforcing every idea he has. Summer literally says, you know, Tom was right in the end. Like, this, you can't say that it's satirizing him and not actually satirize him. Like, I don't think this is a victim of the satire paradox. I don't think it's a satire. I think it's a catastrophe. (laughs) It's just interesting because I don't think what she says at the end, I guess I still think that she's saying, like, he wasn't right about her. Like, I actually think that's, like, a beautiful, cool message to have in a rom-com. Like, so many rom-coms are about this person being the one. I actually do think it's kind of cool to have a rom-com where it's like, actually the point of this movie is that yes, love might be real, but just because you fall in love with someone doesn't mean that that person falls in love with you. Like, I see what you and mean. the idea, like, and I guess I, I, I don't think that her saying that in the end is like a total undercutting of the entire film. I agree it muddles things and it gets muddy. And I agree that her being married, there's like a real conservatism in that, yeah. that this like young independent woman who really a year ago had been like, we're young, why get married? Fell in love and instantly got married. There's conservatism in the yeah. view that her being in love would then yeah. automatically lead to the marriage. Also, do we know how long it takes to plan a wedding? You can't do it that yeah, sort seriously. of time. Like, uh, how long does it take to become an architect? How long does it take to plan a wedding? <laughs> Not 500 days. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I, I sorry for getting so worked no, up. No, so like, I, I, I love, yeah. I was ready. I knew that we were going to be on like, I knew I was going to be the apologist. Yeah, and I was going to be really. And I think it's good. What, what I, I guess for me, what really bugs me is that Summer getting married really undercuts her argument at the beginning. You know, it, it makes it clear that it's not that she wasn't ready for a relationship. It's not that she didn't think love was real. It's not that she had an opinion of her own and was a person with a different view than the main character. It's just that she didn't love him, you know? But I don't think it's true, I guess, to me, but like. Don't people change? Sure, but... <sighs> so it's, like, funny to me to be like, it proves... He doesn't. His his view of love is the same in the end. That he is an architect by the end. How dare you say he right. doesn't change? So he wears, he a, wears suit. a suit. He wears a yeah. suit. But, but, but what 
what bugs me is that it, it invalidates what she said. It doesn't present it as a real argument, you know? It presents it as just a phase. And I think, like, speaking as somebody who is getting into the polyamorous scene, that's really insulting, honestly, to say that, like, oh, you'll feel differently when you meet the right person. Like, I've met the right person. I've met several right people. Sure, but she never, like... I understand that, but I also think she never says, like, I am Polly. It's not, you know, it's not like she was like, I don't know, like, people exist who maybe don't believe in love until they fall in love. That's a person you can portray in a film, you know? Especially, like, these are about people in their 20s figuring things out. Like, that's what I, that's part of what I like about the film is that it puts two people at extremes in a situation together. She's at the extreme of, like, I don't think love exists. I haven't felt it. I think it's a fairy tale. His extreme is... I think love exists. I think it's the only way to be happy. And in fact, I've already decided I'm in love love with you. And by the end of the film, you have two people who have now like, I don't know, to me, it's about the romance of a relationship that doesn't work. And the romance is like when you come into contact with people who don't end up being the one, they still change you and they probably change you for the better. Apologist alert. I I don't think that it's I don't think Tom ever recognizes that that he's better off for having known Summer. You know, he still resents her in the end. Even in their final scene, he's asking for an apology for normal behavior, dancing with him at a wedding, like acting like she led him on when she didn't. No, they talked like exes at the wedding. I, I just I don't see the change in Tom that you do. To me, he still looks like the same prick, the same guy who talks about women being skanks and whose friends talk a big game about, oh, she's a lesbian. Oh, you sound gay. Oh, I'd love to have a girlfriend with a bodacious rack. No, that's I, a line from the I know, film. I like, know. I don't, I don't see a change in him. I, I see the same, same small little man that he was at the start, honestly. Uh, and so the idea that this movie is about him learning something seems completely fraudulent to me. I'm sorry. I just, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I really hate this is. movie. Well, I mean, I get what you're saying where I think if you were to, I think you're right in like pinpointing one of the biggest weaknesses is that he never apologizes and then he yes. never like, you know. Recognizes what he did wrong, not what went wrong, what he did that was wrong because he does a lot of stuff in this movie that is toxic and abusive. He yells at her. He punches people. He he disrespects her boundaries. He doesn't listen when she speaks. Yeah. She, he emotionally blackmails her and manipulates her. He He's a bad guy. And to never acknowledge that and have it end on this happy note for him really upsets me. I do think it's a weakness of the film. I do think it's a weakness of a film. But I also think that part of him doing all those things. And I know like you, you don't think the movie is successful. So to you, you're just like, well, it doesn't work. But like, it's, it's part of him following the script of toxic masculinity. Yes. You know, he's like, oh, I should punch this guy because he insulted me and the girl I'm dating. And totally. And so it's like, I don't think that like, yes, this is a film about like a small little man who's like, insecure but it's also a film about like the ways that these scripts encourage really like toxic behavior that actually prevents us from connecting you know like you said he doesn't listen to her there's an entire scene where we get like his internal monologue while she's talking and she says I've never told anyone that before and you realize as the audience you have no idea what she's just said yeah yeah well that's that's what I'm saying though what I I guess where our disconnect really is if I if I may yeah yeah, go go is that I don't think the authors of the film 
got that, to be honest. I think they wanted to nod at it. Like they they had just enough self-awareness to wink at the audience, but not enough to really say anything that would challenge those norms. Like they they make like even this this big speech he has about how movies and songs mislead us. He stands up at work and makes this big speech. That's straight out of a movie. You know, that's not how you quit your job. You send a two weeks notice in privately and tell your boss you want a good recommendation. I wrote down, I love a big work freak out scene in movies. That's such a classic <laughs> movie thing. Like you have a meltdown at work. I've never seen that tragically. Well, if I fun. saw that, you would probably be escorted out by security. And like people would be calling you to make sure you weren't having a mental breakdown. Like it's it's just it's this movie wants to play into these tropes just as much as it criticizes them, but it never really undercuts them. It never really belies them. It just says like, nah, keep doing it. And I I, I really do think that that opening title card establishes the author's perspective as resentful, as angry, and as still you know it, if it's based on a real person, still angry at that person. Well, you know, and, and the the screenwriters have said this is based on things that happened to them, and it's just it it just reads uh-huh. like they're still fucking mad about it, and that is going to prevent them from actually having any kind of honest reckoning with what they did to contribute to a bad situation. Yeah. Sorry. One thing I do want to go back on and say though is that. I agree that he exhibits asshole behavior through the whole film. Yeah. But I don't think it's fair to paint this as a film about one asshole guy and a girl who, like, does nothing wrong the whole film. Like, I don't know. To me, like, this is a film where he's 90% the asshole, but also, like, you know, there was, I think that when you are dating and if you really don't want to be in a relationship, there are maybe things that you do not do that like might feed into someone's fantasy of what a relationship is. Here I disagree. I think Summer did nothing wrong. Honestly, she she told them from the start what her boundaries were. She communicated them throughout the film. Just because she wants to hold his hand, that doesn't mean that she wants a relationship. Physical contact is just, it's its own thing. I I am a Summer Finn apologist. I, I think that she... <laughs> is honest from the start, and that's why I hate her ending so much, because it it completely betrays the character that she's been in this entire film. You know, I think when I first watched this movie, I really didn't like her because, you know, my ex... Manic pixie trauma. (laughs) I I didn't like her when I first saw this film because it was this whole manic pixie thing. Um, But honestly, on reflection, I think that 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 really underserves the character rather than the character underserving the film, you know, that she is forced into this role of manic pixie dream girl. Because I, I don't think she does anything wrong. You know, she does her best to communicate with a man who does not want to listen to her. And if she does anything wrong, it's to get involved with him at all. If he wanted a relationship, he should not have gotten involved. He shouldn't have told her it was okay. He keeps telling her it's fine that he doesn't want a relationship either. But he does. He's lying to her. She is a victim. I think it's a bit condescending to solely label her as a victim. I see what you mean. Like, because I think, I don't know, I I guess I very much see this film as about two people in their, you know, young adulthood trying to figure out what they want in love and in life and trying to figure out how to be happy. And like, even the beginning of the film starts with this montage, split screen montage of them as as children, which I think really emphasizes that this is like a coming of age. And I think it's a bit of a coming age for both of them. And I do agree that like, if we were to dole out points for who is an asshole, he gets way more points than her. Cause I do agree that like he 
regularly agrees to her boundaries. But I also think like having seen a lot of, I don't think this is like the most uncommon thing to go through as a young person. Sure. To be, to like kind of have two people, one who's like, I don't want a relationship. And I do think like, I've seen a lot of people go through something where they're with someone who's like, they, someone who doesn't want a relationship, but wants all the accoutrement of a relationship. And I think that when that dynamic is a man who doesn't want a relationship and a woman does, it's like, we read that really quickly as like, hmm, you know, he's maybe being irresponsible. Not that anyone has done something wrong, but that there is someone who's being irresponsible with their feelings. And I think just because she's a woman doing that doesn't mean that like, she is amazing and no, like perfect no, I, the whole film. I think she's someone who doesn't want a relationship and is also, she says, I'm curious about you or I'm interested in you, right? Yeah. She's someone who's being a little sloppy with another person's feelings because it is convenient. I'll cop to that. And so like, is he more the asshole than her? 1000%. But the idea that like she were, behaves, you know, with total respect and total responsibility for another person's feelings. Even the end of the film, when she puts her hand on his hand, it's just kind of like, here's someone who's clearly communicated to you that he is not over you in a variety of ways. That to me feels a bit like, are you respecting this person's boundaries, you know? All right. All right. I see what you mean. I, I can see it read that way. I just, I I don't know. I... <sighs> Uh, maybe I'm overreacting because she's been so unfairly vilified. I feel like she definitely has been unfairly yeah. vilified. Yeah. I have actually this quote that is from um, a New York Times article, July 9th. So this is a week before the movie actually premieres from 2009. And it talks about how some male journalists asked Zoe Deschanel during, you know, press the, the press run for the film. Why some are such a bitch. Jesus. Yeah. And and Zoe Deschanel says, I sort of take it personally yeah. because she was upfront with Tom at the beginning. And because I think we did a good job of not making her seem like that. And then um, Webb, the director, said they're just not used to a movie where they don't win. And by they, he means men. And I so I do think it's important when we talk about the film to to really be like, She's not a bitch. We have yeah, to stand up exactly. for Summer Finn because she's definitely not a bitch. And the reaction initially, I think a big part of the way that culture interpreted this film is this fucking bitch yeah. missed out on this amazing guy, yeah. which is not what they wanted to do with the movie. What, what I will, I, I'll counter your Mark Webb quote with a Mark Webb quote, which is that he said, Summer's not a girl. She's a phase. What was the context of that? It, he was talking about how Summer sort of represents Tom's idea mm. of a perfect woman rather than being a character in her own right, mm-hmm. which to me is sort of saying the quiet part out loud of like, we didn't really want to write a female character. <laughs> you know, it's mm. to me, it's sloppy writing. It's it's. It's not doing 50% of your job if you're not writing your female characters as fully fleshed out people rather than as talking about how they relate to the male lead. You know, it's mm. it's just bad writing. It's bad storytelling to do it that way, even if you're intending to do it that way. Mm. I will say that in a in a 10-year retrospective with um, uh, Entertainment Weekly, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel talked about that, like the, the reaction that Summer got as a character and and – Mm. Gordon-Levitt himself said, like, Summer is honest the entire time. So I do think you're right. I I do think that the people making this movie were more sympathetic to Summer than the audience may have been. But I still think that they failed their, you know, uh, their intended purpose. Yeah. 
let's get into Summer mm-hmm. as an individual more because, like, she is the reason we're here. She is the bisexual character in this movie, and the way that her bisexuality comes up very much plays into her, you know, sort of uh, – Call it what you will, archetype, stereotype, accusation, uh, insult, manic pixie dream girl status. Yeah. So so let's get into it because I, I that's the thing. I think that it it part of the reason it's so hard to talk about her is because she's not very finely wrought. She doesn't have much internal mechanism to support her characterization because part of the manic pixie dream girl trope is that it how it relates back to men, because as with misogyny. Everything comes back to men. Mm. And so, like, her function in the script is more about how she affects Tom than having a consistent worldview of her own. Yeah, I do think, I think Zoe Deschanel gives her a lot. Exactly. Like, I do think that she maybe is, she's just really well acted in this film, I think, in, like, giving, giving her a lot of just small gestures and facial expressions that I think fill in. Yeah. Her person, like, and I do think it's sad. It's a bit of a loss because I think there's a lot about her character that feels like if they'd gone into it more, it would have been a better film. I think the idea of having a person who doesn't believe in love is great. I think just like the way that she relates to this world, the world in kind of this like deadpan, slightly funny way. Like, I, I'm sad that there's not more to her, yeah. you know? No, I absolutely agree. I think Deschanel's performance is, I, I, that's the thing. It, it's gone through this cycle of like people, you know, anytime you have a celebrity with a particular persona, like a more notable persona, there's going to be a phase where everyone loves them, a phase where everyone hates them. And then after yeah. that, you can have a real opinion. Yeah. I think Deschanel is a great comedic performer. Yes. Like, I I think her, you know, her performance in Elf and New Girl really show that she has real comedic chops. Yeah. And so, yeah, she, I I think she saves the character, you know, without her charisma, this, this really would be like a flat hit piece on women. Yeah. But yeah, I, I still think that like, she isn't given a lot to work with and, and yes, I know I can hear <laughs> what other people are immediately going to say, which is, but the film is from Tom's perspective and it's like, yeah, every movie is from someone's perspective, but that doesn't mean every other character is like a hollow husk. Yeah. Uh, th- they need their own mechanisms that relate to a theme rather than to an individual person. Well, and I, I think the biggest like just to pinpoint where her character is lacking the most in terms of what we actually know about her to me it's like what are her dreams and goals yeah because she's like quite pushy with tom mm. in a way that is like you know really for him like motivating about how oh you don't want to work here at this card company do something else. Do, do something else yeah exactly but we don't so she's like really pushy so there's a lot of opportunity there in the script for him to push back and be like well what is it you want to do yeah and i don't i'm not even saying that like people need to have big goals and dreams to be real sure. people i'm just saying that in within this film it would have made a lot of sense yeah. to like and and even the way that she appears in new york for michigan she said, he's you know, like, it's why so did you? Sorry, I, <laughs> I want to keep this in because I constantly think that this movie is set in New York. It's not. It's set Same. in Los Angeles. No, it's Los Angeles shot as if it's New York. Yeah, exactly. It seems like they wrote it to be New York and then shot it in Los Angeles by coincidence because people take the train and walk, which is not 
No, I know. It, it didn't make any sense when they're taking the train. Sorry. So, yeah. So, in La- he's yeah. like, how did you get here to Los Angeles? And she's like, oh, well, I was, I was really bored. And so, it's almost like, okay, so this woman who was bored in Michigan vaporized, like, like appears randomly, Angeles. pops into Los Angeles. But, like, that's a big move. There's a lot behind that. We could have more to her backstory of why she's here. We could have more to, like, yeah. you know, what it what it is going on in her head throughout their relationship. And yeah, so... So even if Tom doesn't understand her, we could. Yeah, yeah. And I I think, again, like, I think this is what I'm talking about, where it's like her function is to motivate Tom to do things. Definitely. That's why she pushes him to do things, because she's there to motivate the male character to change. But she... But that pushiness doesn't make sense for a person, because she doesn't seem to have any real specific drives and ambitions herself. So why does she think he should? Yeah. Because he's the protagonist, and she's created to further his arc. (laughs) Yeah, and like the only change that we really get from her throughout the film is the change of her relationship status and her belief in love. How she relates to men. And how she relates to men, yeah. and But it's like, it would even be nice to kind of echo back like towards the end as she's talking about how she believes in love. It'd be nice if she even talked about the life that she had claimed she wanted a year ago yeah. or, two, or two years ago of like, we're young. Recognize that she had changed rather than just saying I was wrong. Just say like. Yeah. Or like recognize that maybe her relationship, there's lots of ways that people can be married and still like be really independent, you yeah. know, like, like it would have been interesting to be like, oh, but I'm still me, you know, like, but there's just no callback. Instead, it's just like, I totally change. And like you said, it makes that independence feel like a phase where like her independence was her most defining feature for so much of the film. I mean, let's talk about her introduction is in that opening montage as children. Her introduction is that her parents get divorced and she only loves two things, her hair and how she can cut her hair without feeling a thing. Yeah. This is setting her up as a character who's deeply traumatized by her parents' divorce. And that is what is keeping her from establishing a strong relationship. The two things she loves are her own appearance and her mm-hmm. inability to feel emotions. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. Yeah. Again, this is this is a very fucked up view of a person. Yeah. You know, like th- this, this really does feel like somebody writing like a scathing blog post about their ex-girlfriend before they go on to create Facebook. Well, and it, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But and it also feels like such a relic of the early 2000s and what like, I do remember a time when, like, people were just so worried about the trauma that divorce would yeah. r- rot on children. And I think, like, now enough time has passed. Not that that can't be a traumatizing event, depending. Sure. But I, I also think that now enough time has passed where, like, enough children of divorced parents have grown up that, like, it's no longer. I think for a while it was used as a lazy plot device where it's, yeah. like. Almost the way, honestly, like that sexual assault is used often for women as a plot device yeah. of like, why are you fucked up? Why yeah. are you this way? Because yeah. bad happened. A bad happened to me. Or, or orphans in like fantasy or films. Yeah. 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 And it definitely feels like, oh, yeah, she's divorced. So she's broken and fucked up. Exactly. Which is like some people might feel that way. Yeah. But, but a, like, a lot of people a don't. Little, a lot of people don't. Yeah. A lot of people are actually fine. Yeah. That my happens. parents' divorce, if anything, helped me become more emotionally self-actualized because I saw yeah. all the ways that they hadn't been. <laughs> yeah. But her bisexuality. Yeah. Because let's talk about the, the way it comes up is that Summer is listing her exes to Tom, which is actually a pretty normal thing to do in relationships in my experience. Um, you have to do it or you else. You gotta. It's the laundry list. Um <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and 
I think this this scene actually really shows like my beef with this movie because it's really well done. Mm -hmm. You know, as she's saying names, he's picturing people, and we see like these mm -hmm. black and white photos come up, and it's really well edited. And it's well edited. It's fun. It's funny. It's genuinely funny. I think I, it's funny. I, I don't mean to lose the plot here. Like Mark Webb, whether or not I agree with what he was doing, he did it well. Yeah. You know, like this is a well-directed film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so she's listing off exes and there's the high school boyfriend, there's a college girlfriend, and then there's like one other guy. Mm -hmm. um, and those are like the, the ones that lasted. So it's interesting that she, she specifically says these are the ones that lasted. So she, she implies she had a long relationship with a woman in college. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the only time it comes up. And... That's sad. It it's is really so sad. sad. It, it is. It basically, the way it functions in the movie, it feels like, and this film is almost always cited in like articles writing about the quote unquote manic pixie dream totally. girl. And the way that this detail functions in the film is really along the lines of the manic pixie dream girl, where it's kind of just the cherry on top yeah. to how she is so quirky. She's yeah. so alternative. She has this weird mole. And do you know, she's she bisexual. She loves the Smiths. She's bi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Ringo is her favorite beetle, you know? It's really sad because there could have been, I think it is possible, well, not always true, that queerness can really, in a positive way, change your view of what a relationship can be, yeah. the way a relationship has a place in your life, how to be happy. Yeah. Like there can be a lot of joy in being queer and feeling liberated from the like, you know, fairy tale script of romance. And I actually think that that detail that she not only is by, but had a relationship with a woman that was, you know, lasted long enough, that could have really been a bigger part of like, coloring in why she feels the way that she does about being independent yeah. and love. And instead it's used to titillate. It's just like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's window dressing. Yeah. And it's used to titillate and it's used to like further her, her desirability and her desirability. Yeah. And it's just, it feels like a missed opportunity. It's not, it's not my favorite by rep representation of all time. Yeah. Well, no, I fully agree. And I, I think that, it really represents the way bisexuality has been viewed for so long in American culture. The the way that it plays into this, that it, it's, you know, a woman with a college girlfriend who is desirable, you know, and that the, the bisexuality is sexy. Yeah, it's a it love. Yeah. And I, I fully agree with what you were saying. Like, since I've come out as queer, I have completely metamorphosize my opinions of relationships. You know, I was a, a staunch monogamist um, before I was out. And yeah. like, I, I think it really is the self-reflection aspect where it's like, especially for bisexuals, to come out as queer, you have to think about what do I want? Uh -huh. um, and it requires you to go against the grain uh, of what people tell you to want. Um, and so that can really, like you were saying, that can really open up you know, once you start questioning one thing, you can start to question a lot of things. And I, I, I definitely agree. I think that really could have played a bigger part into, like, how Summer talks about relationships with Tom, where she could have said, like, you know, maybe instead of I don't believe in love, say, like, I don't believe in long-term commitment or I don't believe in marriage. I don't believe in yeah. monogamy, something, rather than – because I, I really – I. I know very few people who explicitly say they don't think love exists. Right. Even people who don't believe in marriage or or polyamory or monogamy or anything, people who don't date at all. 
I, I very rarely meet somebody who says, no, the emotion of love isn't real. And that's partly due to changing times. I think the conversation has shifted. You know, I do think that back in 2009, maybe there that was like a position people took that love isn't real. But these days, it, it just rings hollow to me. Back in 2009, everyone had their iPods and they were going around <laughs> yeah. being like, love ain't real. Yep. Yeah. Well, and it's also really funny because like <laughs> what what's the wait, what's the term? It's it's funny to me that she ends up with a man. Yeah. Like, I almost feel like this movie would have made so much more sense to me if she had ended up with a woman. Yeah. Because a lot of the way that she acts towards him and about love actually really feel like potentially examples of compulsory heterosexuality. Yeah. Like, I guess, like, to, like, to me, like, this movie, like, it reminds me a lot of uh, The Price of Salt, um, which is yeah, what, what the Carol book, is based on. What yeah. Carol is based on. In a lot of Price of Salt, Therese is dating this guy who's, like, perfectly nice and really into her. And she's just kind of like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. And, like, obviously, like, that would be, this would be a completely different movie and we wouldn't even be talking about it if yeah. in the end she'd be like, actually, I'm a lesbian. But, like. Yeah. There's a lot to this film that I feel like would resonate with with women who like do identify as lesbians of just being like, yeah, I just didn't believe in love because like I wasn't I freaking attracted to men, but I was like pushed into that. So I don't know. It's just I, I, I actually think that it can work for bisexuality as well, where it's like you you don't believe in love because the way because it doesn't fully resonate with who you are. I think mm-hmm. the, the compulsory heterosexuality definitely affects you and I as well as, you know, in a different way. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, think- I fully agree with you. I think that honestly, that's a really smart read of the film that Summer is like repressing her queerness to a certain extent. And it ends with her doubling down on on that <laughs> yeah and that's like another it just feels like this film like yeah missed out on on an opportunity because that's the thing like queerness part of the reason i love the term queer is because it is about more than just who you sleep with yeah you know it's about a worldview it's about queering your perspective on life and looking past this like cis hetero patriarchal system we live in because i do know plenty of of queer people who don't, you know, who who identify as gay or lesbian or bi, but still want to fit into the mold, still want to be like white picket fence suburbanites. They just, you know, want to be accepted for who they love. And that's understandable. But for me personally, I identify as queer because I don't like the white picket fence, you know. Um, mm. And to me, like, that is on a continuity with my bisexuality. Mm. And so it, it it does seem like like Summer's quirkiness is also dabbling in camp and queer energy to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it this taken from a different perspective. This story is a tragedy about a queer woman <laughs> who is desperately looking for a man who will treat her well at the very least, yeah. so that she can conform to a society that doesn't want to allow her to be the fully dimensional person that she is. Boom. He said it. He said it. Well, it's interesting because I think like labels are so fluid. I don't think everyone who identifies as queer does it in that same way that you do. But I do love I love that explanation for it. And and I fully I'm an anarchist. I don't think that my way of living is for everyone. (laughs) But I but we love it and we support it. Right. Everyone on the podcast agree. Yes. Um, (laughs) Everyone say yes. But. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's, it, well, it is interesting. I want to go back really quickly to the idea that you brought up that I think is something I haven't thought about that much, but I think is really worth talking about and fits in with her bisexuality, that this is on so many levels a conservative film. And I think the way that her bisexuality comes up is like a very conservative view of sexuality where like, sure, maybe you mess around in college or, but then ultimately you go on and you, you marry a man. And it's interesting because I, I read a little bit just about tweeness because so much of, of Zoe Deschanel's aesthetic in this film, but also in real life, like really mm-hmm. typifies that twee style that was so popular back then. And um, this is from Refinery29, and it's a recent article about how its tweeness is coming back. (laughs) And it said, there were downsides to the aesthetic, which became synonymous with the manic pixie dream girl character trope. Problematic personality traits included a focus on virginal innocence, Mm -hmm. while at the fashion end of the spectrum, things often centered around wifey thinness and whiteness. Yep. So I think like, Super true. There, actually, there's a line I caught this time in 500 Days of Summer when they're in the bar. The opening thing is Tom saying, you know, women in the 1960s London knew how to dress or something like mm-hmm. that. And it's like, dude, where the fuck do you get off? And to, to the, the screener's credit, Summer says something along the lines of, well, people like it. <laughs> people dress how they like. Yeah. And and this is a quote from Rolling Stone. Uh about the tweet aesthetic, it says popularized primarily by 500 Days of Summer era <laughs> Zoe de Chanel. Twee was a combination of throwback, ultra feminine 1950s style, mm-hmm. think mod cloth teacup dresses and poodle sk- skirts, with a cutesy librarian aesthetic, Peter Pan bosses, cardigans, and bangs. It's interesting because it's kind of this femininity that's cute and approachable, but also possessable, you know? Unthreatening. Like, unthreatening femininity. Yeah. That's, um, and yeah, I think that's another way in which this film is a bit conservative and I don't want to put it on Zoe Deschanel because I think that's also just part of her personal style. Yeah. She chose that aesthetic for herself. Yeah. But it is just like within the context of the film. The adulation. Yeah. The idea that that is an ideal that everyone should. And it's signified by that scene you bring up. Yeah. And it's interesting because she does choose to defend the women who do that in that moment where she's like, this is my style, but this isn't like. The style. Yeah. This isn't like the the height of femininity. So. Yeah. I I think it's interesting because I think a lot of the way that she dresses, it is a, a, a bit of a conservative throwback yeah. or just like it, it's a, it, it plays into that twee style, which yeah. can carry these like kind of conservative messages. And I think to, to his credit, like Mark Webb in an interview I read talked about how like that is like part of the movie is that this is about how like Tom has this phase where it, I think the charitable read of the idea, like summer isn't a girl, she's a phase is the idea that like, you go like young, many young men go through a phase in their life where they think that this is the ideal of femininity. This is who I should be with and then have to be disabused of that notion by saying like, no, this woman is a person. So I I, I do think that there is a more charitable understanding of their intent there, even if I, I still think it fails. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> um, Watching this in Year of Our Lord 2022, it definitely it definitely reminds me of like which way Western man incel vibes a little bit where it's like I want a, a wifey, you know, dresses, bangs and mascara and modern yeah. women don't get it. They're scary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I remember when like 
Birds of Prey was coming out and everybody was so mad that Harley Quinn dressed slightly differently. And it's like, she's actually wearing more revealing clothes, but they look like clothes she chose for herself. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They're less cutesy. I want to point out kind of a random thing, but I thought this was really interesting. This is also from the New York Times Review in 2009. And it talks about the fact that something notable about this film was that Zoe Deschanel is 29 and Joseph Gordon-Levitt was 28. And it's kind of rare on screen to see um, like an age match between a man and a woman because she had really recently... Uh, been played opposite Will Ferrell in Elf and Jim Carrey and Yes Man, both who are like very much her seniors. And I thought that was like, I don't know, I bring it up just because it's so sad, right? That That that's remarkable, yeah. That that's remarkable and that we're so accustomed to seeing younger like women with, you know, older men. And it's kind of sad that it's like, oh, well, we have this example of like an age matched relationship, appropriate relationship that's kind of like, uh, really, you know, I wouldn't say this film is controversial, but it's like imperfect, I would say, you know. Yeah, I actually, it's like a bit of fearful symmetry with the, the comparison you made to Lolita earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, isn't it funny? I was like, that's never going to believe that I'm going to bring up Lolita today. Well, it makes complete sense. <laughs> I just want to really quick to tie a knot on her bisexuality. Yeah. The lesbian and gay jokes in this movie really suck. Yeah. And and it also feels like taken, like when you see it as a whole with a film that she's like randomly by and never talk about it again, but then has to sit through these kinds of things and kind of last at these jokes. It really is like not a film that I think would have been like encouraged anyone seeing it to come out, you know? And the fact that it is like, it it is portrayed as like, oh, his funny friends who are such goofballs, like such losers, but don't we love them? And they're always like talking, like anytime Tom says anything approaching emotional intelligence, they call him gay. Anytime a woman rejects them, she's a skank or a lesbian. Isn't that cute? Yeah. Like it it really promotes this normalization of homophobic and misogynistic language. Yeah, exactly. And it really like, like, I think it's it's easy to forget that not that long ago, like, <laughs> lesbian could just be an insult. Yeah. You know, I think about the way that it was used in Mean Girls, too. And I don't want to suggest that, like, every movie needs to, like, encourage people to come out. But I'm saying this is, like, an actively antagonistic, yeah. you know. It's, it's like a Kevin Smith movie level of homophobia. And, and, like, part of what's so gross about the homophobia in this film is how casual and subtle it is. Yeah. It's and so how it's, baked it, the, in. It's treated as normal. You know, I think. Yeah, it's so baked in. Mean Girls is a great comparison where it's like, it's treated as fucked up that everybody's calling Janice a lesbian because it is fucked up to use that as an insult. Mm -hmm. But in this one, it's just treated as normal conversational tone. A funny joke. Yeah. A funny joke because there are no lesbians around and would there ever be? Yeah. You know, it's like, (laughs) like that's what's so gross about it. Compulsive, compulsory heteronormativity. Compulsory heteronormativity. (laughs) Heterosexuality or heteronormativity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've taken a very hardline stance. So first off. And I think that's fun. I think that's fun. Okay. But I do want to say like, 
I don't I, I hope it hasn't sounded like I'm not taking what you're saying seriously because I think not you at all. Actually, I was in yeah. debate club, so okay, this is fun. <laughs> and I, I I I hope it's clear that like I am playing up how much I hate this movie. Like the screaming is more of a gag than anything. I love it. And I'm not saying this I for you, it. I'm saying it for the audience. <laughs> no, no, for the audience you should know Nat's really yelling. Yeah. <laughs> he's Nat's really mad. Angry. I can, I I can see him on screen. He's 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 so upset. As I'm like ranting and raving about misogyny if I'm like shouting over my co-hosts, like that would be terrible. Um, I'm covering my ass. Hashtag misogyny. Yeah. Um, Actually, here, let, no, me, let me take this back. Um, no, no, I love it. No, <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed now. I um, Don't be embarrassed. And I, I do think that this movie, part of the reason it upsets me is that it is well made. Like the expectations versus reality scene, I think, is a particular example of like, that's brilliant editing and camera yeah. work and performance. Yeah. Like there are some genuinely great ideas at play here. Even if I stand by everything I've said so far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I think one thing I'd like to point out, too, mm-hmm. I couldn't find this article, mm-hmm. um, but I did find an article referencing an article that seems to have been disappeared <laughs> that was written by the screenwriter that was about how like the best way to get over a woman is to like make yes, art about her. I saw that too. Yes. Um, the Henry Miller quote, uh, the best way to get over a woman is to turn her into literature. Yeah. And, and, and it seems like he wrote this whole article. And so like, I think you're right when you pinpoint the beginning of the movie sets this tone when the word bitch comes up, which really did shock me in the beginning. <laughs> it was like, yeah, like, I think the reason that this movie is so muddled is because you have a writer who seems to really be injecting some actual resentment into the film without reflecting and processing on it. And then you have a director who, and I also think a cast who are trying to make this anti-romance, but like you've got all these mixed perspectives coming together and they don't quite coalesce into like one movie. And so I think it's really easy to come away from the movie feeling the bitterness of the screenwriter and the resentment. And I think it's really harder to see what the director and maybe Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel wanted to to put out there. Yeah, I I fully agree with that. Yeah. But I did want to reference that article that I couldn't (laughs) dig up because like, I think that when you pick on those threads, you are right. There's a man at the other end of this movie who's fucking pissed about a breakup, you know? Yeah. And I, it's funny, that quote actually comes up in the movie. Like, his friend Mackenzie says it to him. Um, and Tom's response is, that guy had more sex than me. Ugh, yeah, annoying. I know. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. I, I think you're fully right. I think Mark Webb and Deschanel and Gordon Levitt really did their best to make this a more interesting movie, despite the script. Uh, you know, far, yeah. I, I hate to throw a writer under the bus, but, but here this you are. writer deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. Mary fuck kill. Mary fuck kill. Who we gonna pick? Um, Summer. Sure. Um, if we put Tom in there, I'm killing him. No, me too. <laughs> okay, me too. good. Uh, um, so let's leave him out because he's just dead. Um, what about Summer, Autumn, and someone else? <laughs> uh, the blind date that he goes on. Allison, I think her yeah, name Allison, is Allison. Yeah. All right, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. That's kind of funny. The three victims Poor of Allison. Tom Hansen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Again, and not that they that's their only personality trait, just that he is a shithead. Anyway. Um <laughs> All right, yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um I would love to be destroyed by Summer Finn. 
And I mean that emotionally. Like, I don't mind. Like, if she put me through the ringer and didn't want a relationship with me and I was heartbroken, I wouldn't be an asshole like Tom. I would just, like, accept, swallow my heartbreak, move on with my life. It would be worth it. Yeah. So is that a marry or a fuck? Maybe that's lame. Is that so lame of me? No. That's... I don't think she would marry. I wouldn't want to marry her. I yeah. want to respect her autonomy and her independence. So I guess that's that's a one night stand. But if you married her, then she would then it would help her more fully actualize her queerness. That's what I would love to do. Help help her actualize her queerness. No, but I, okay. So yeah, I think I would marry her or just engage in a long term commitment of her desired comfort. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Length. Exactly. Cohabitation. Yeah, and I would potentially. I don't. I think I, so this is, I'm really torn because Autumn is played by an actress whose voice I literally find insane. She's in Friday Night Lights. I think it's the prettiest voice and she's so pretty. She is very pretty. But I'm trying to separate, you know, and we're really talking about the character here, not the actress. Really talking about the character. Um, so I think I would kill her because I'd put her out of her misery <laughs> yeah, after before Tom her relationship gets a with to, Tom yeah. or before. Yeah. Um, and even though it's weird, I think, to date someone with your same name, I think Allison <laughs> really deserves a good date and a good one night stand after her horrific yeah. nightmarish date with Tom. Yeah. So that's my answer. I think that makes sense. I, I'm i actually, I'm going to, uh, it's going to be pretty similar. I think I'm going to default kill Autumn more than anything. Just, she is <laughs> so pretty, wonderful voice. But I am marrying Allison because she tells Tom who he is, and I yeah. love her for it. Yes, yeah. she really nails him to the wall. Yeah, uh, and she seems more interested in like a committed relationship. You know, she accepted like a blind date. You know, she's going on. You know, she's looking for something. And then Summer, mm-hmm. I would I would fuck Summer because you know it seems like that's what she's interested in, at least at the start of the movie. Yeah, um, and that's you know that's a yeah. okay by me. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say Morrissey is a fucking weirdo. <laughs> this has been really fun. Yeah, this I I really enjoy the ones where we disagree, honestly, like more than anything else. It's so much fun. I do too. And and I we hope you feel the same. Thank you so much for listening to Snails and Oysters, the bi-weekly bi-coastal bisexual movie podcast. If you enjoy the show, please like, subscribe, uh, review, whatever your chosen platform lets you do, interact with us. Uh, and if you really, really like the or show, <laughs> did you say or else? Yeah, I said or else. I'm feeling <laughs> spicy. I went on a run today. You're right. We need to get more <laughs> aggressive in these credits. Um, uh, if you really, really like the show, head over to patreon.com slash snails oysters there. You can sign up for $5 a month to support the show and you will get monthly bonus episodes where Allie and I talk about our favorite movies and you will get to read my reviews. I write a little blurb every time I, uh, watch a movie. Basically I privatized my letterboxd account. Hell yeah. And that's classic anarchist move. <laughs> yeah, very- <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Big ups. <laughs> Big ups to Abby Austin, uh, who who did our really wonderful cover art, which will be on our T-shirts one day once one day. we come up with a catchphrase that doesn't suck. <laughs> um, and to Billy Libby, who did our really awesome theme music. I personally think it is the bisexual lighting of podcast theme music. I fully agree. Both their social media handles are in the episode notes along with our social media. And Snails and Oysters, of course, is at Snails Oysters on Twitter. Hit us up with movie suggestions, with what you thought of our latest episode, and if you disagree with our takes on Mary Fuck Kill. Catch you later, bystanders. <laughs> bystanders isn't bad. Um, uh, that was actually a friend suggestion from like two that. years yeah, ago. Shout we were, out Logan. Shout out, shout Logan, out Logan. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, until next time, I'm Nat Roberts. And I'm Allie Rogers. And Thanks thank you for being, being a bye. bye. I like the rhythm we got there. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>